Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape. Or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today. And view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 4th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Today, the government will publish its summer economic statements. And we will also at that point have uh, the mid-year exchequer position. And that will help to provide clarity on the resources that are available uh, to the government, uh, to the country, in the context of Budget 2023. This is uh, the first step in drafting Budget 2023, a cost-of-living budget with inflation at a 40-year high, currently running at 9.6%. It is quite possibly the case that as a country uh, we may face a prolonged period of high inflation. We think it will peak uh, in the short number of months ahead, but we cannot be certain uh, of that. The government has a, a lot of money to play with, but there'll be a lot of pressure with many demands from across every sector for a share of that six and a half billion euro. We have to time our further interventions uh, to have maximum impact, and it is our view. Uh, that people will most need further help uh, come the autumn and into the winter period. Uh, And we will need, at that time, uh, a set of measures uh, that can have an impact quickly and that will, in particular, be targeted at those who most need the help uh, in respect of one-off measures, temporary measures, uh, and so on. And in the budget, we will also need to see, building on measures we've already taken uh, across a range of areas, how we can further address uh, the day-to-day costs that people are facing, whether it be in childcare, in transport, uh, in education, and in health. And we have made moves and made significant investments in in a number of those areas. And of course, there will be a need for a significant welfare package, uh, as well as providing um, a reduction in tax by way of ensuring that people do not continue to climb up uh, into the higher rate of tax as they receive uh, an income increase. In addition, we will have to invest in housing. We will have to invest in healthcare, in education and disability services. We've just listened to the debate there. We need to fund uh, the MICA scheme. We need to make sure we have the resources for the mother and baby homes payment scheme and of course the cost of supporting uh, the refugees who are coming to our country after fleeing war. So there will be a lot of demands on taxpayers' money. 
That's the Minister for Public Expenditure speaking in the Dáil last week, outlining many of uh, the demands on government and mapping out to some degree what to expect uh, this week. Let's speak now to the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash. A very good morning to you uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. As we've been hearing, the government is going to spend two billion more than was expected and I see Daniel McConnell reporting in the Irish Examiner this morning that the budget date will be on the 27th of September being brought forward from uh, the 12th of October. Uh, Will uh, there be enough money to go around despite the massive amount of money that the government has at its disposal? Oh dear. Uh, that's uh, obviously a dropout in the line. Uh, we'll try to get Jed Nash back on uh, the line because this six and a half billion euro budget uh, will, of course, be one of the most important budgets for many of us uh, this year. It'll certainly be one that people will be hoping will offset the increase in uh, the cost of living uh, with uh, the increase in energy prices coming as a huge surprise to everybody. There is another aspect to this, uh, of course course, which is that a lot of this money is already committed and a lot more of it is going to be committed under the public sector pay deal, which is uh, going to gobble up quite a lot of that. Uh, there will be, as you heard uh, Michael McGrath say in uh, the clip uh, from the Dáil, uh, a social welfare package. Uh, but uh, again, people may find themselves disappointed at what is coming their way because for every euro uh, that welfare is increased by, it costs the government €75 million. Euro. Uh, and I think the expectation or the hope is that there'll be increases of €20 euro in welfare rates. Uh, but straight away, that's €1.5 billion euro gone. Uh, I think we've managed to re-establish the line with uh, Jed Nash. Uh, thanks uh, for coming back to us. I'm not sure what happened there. And apologies, apologies uh, to Michael, you. Monday morning gremlins on the phone. It must be indeed. Uh, I was asking you about uh, the date uh, as reported in the Irish Examiner, the 27th of September. Uh, what do you make of that? Uh, because people have been calling for it to happen in the next few weeks. Uh, and then there's this massive wad of cash that the government has. But will it be enough? Will it be uh, enough to go far enough? Well, I don't know if it'll ever be enough. Um, and, and we know that um, no government in the, in the world, let alone our own, can insulate everybody from the worst excesses of the, uh, this unprecedented um, you know, level of inflation that, that we're at at the moment and the strain on, on, on the cost of living. This is about targeting, uh, Michael. And I'll take two things in response to your question. One is that people are feeling the pain and the pressure now, the feeling the squeeze now. And people just simply can't wait till the end of September. Bring in the budget uh, two weeks forward isn't going to make much of a difference if you're struggling already with back-to-school costs and you're struggling already in terms of filling the car to get to work. So we had said over the last few weeks that we'd be prepared to sit over the summer if government were prepared to present a budget package that was targeted at the social welfare increases with the you know tax changes and so on that need to be brought in to ensure that, 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 that people are, are best positioned to make ends meet through, through the summer months. And then, by all means, let's have the budget at the normal your time in the middle of October, if those measures could be brought in uh, now. Uh, we believe that, according to media reports today, the summer economic statement will outline the fact that there's probably just under €7 billion Euro more available than was originally anticipated because of very buoyant uh, tax receipts. I mean, corporation tax is doing exceptionally well. So is income tax. And actually, what's doing exceptionally well is VAT. And we'll see those figures later on today. One of the reasons why VAT is doing so well is actually perversely because of the VAT that we're paying now on higher energy costs and higher 
uh, cause in other sectors of the economy as well. We want to see that that windfall put back into the pockets of those in need of most. And that's why, for example, we've been arguing for a, a, a social welfare summer bonus equivalent to the Christmas bonus to help those who need the help the most through a difficult period. And rather than saying, look, we're going to spend another half a billion uh, euro on tax cuts on top of what they'd already pledged to do, it's going to probably be about a billion euro spent in tax cuts that disproportionately benefit the better off. What we're saying is use that money to target it at mm. the families need it most to give free GP be free GP care to children that only cost eight, 80 million euros you'll cut 2,000 euros off childcare costs and make education genuinely free because mm. everybody knows that it costs so much to send children back to school but also the ongoing costs in terms of school are, are really expensive especially mm. for those in low and middle incomes so for, for half a million euros half a billion euros 500 million euros you can actually make primary and second level genuinely free Okay but why now for a, a bonus uh, for the equivalent of a, a Christmas bonus for welfare recipients because it is going to get worse going into the winter isn't it? Yeah Okay, there's a couple of things that I'd say about that. I mean, we have a €4 billion euro COVID contingency fund that was set aside that actually wasn't thankfully needed. Um, you know, the, the pandemic unemployment payment has been wound down. Uh, there wasn't as big a call on that resource as we initially anticipated earlier on this year because of the behaviour of COVID and the reopening up of the economy. Uh, significant resources were set aside as well uh, to fulfil our obligations in terms of welcoming refugees fleeing the, the, the conflict uh, in the war in Ukraine. Uh, and a lot of that is untapped. So there's actually existing resources there that could be tapped into. Uh, and this isn't about new money. It's not about next mm. year's money. Uh, this is actually about you know, trying to keep the, the wheels in motion this year for those who need the most support. And if you provided a, a, a so-called social welfare bonus to those who are on core social welfare payments, that would greatly help people to meet the rising energy and food bills. And look at the Eurostat figures mm. from last week. You know, we, we know that, we know that um, inflation is running at just under 10% now. The CSO said it would be 8% at the end of this year. Uh, but wages are only actually averaging uh, an increase of about 4 to 4.5%. So social welfare increases only went up about 2% after the last budget. So there's a real squeeze on the incomes of you know, working people and people who, who depend on the state for their living. So those targeted payments now would basically help people meet the bills. Mm. Nothing else. I mean, look at food prices, Michael. I mean, you may have covered this last week. I mean, Eurostat, the European Statistics mm. Agency, were saying that, you know, eggs, milk and butter in Ireland is 25% above the EU average. Now, that's not stuff that's imported. This is stuff that we produce here. Which is why... The staples are rising in the way that they are. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's all relative to your income uh, and that's why when people go abroad, it's probably a good thing that it's expensive to live in this country because when you go abroad, uh, you feel as though uh, you're very wealthy because people there are not earning the same kind of money as you and uh, all of these things are that much cheaper. Uh, But when uh, you talk about a welfare increase, are you talking about a a bonus, a double week across the board for pensioners and the unemployed? That's right. Uh, just like the, the Christmas bonus, and there are mm. certain thresholds that have to be met. I mean, you have to be able to work a year, for example, to. Um, but we've labour shortages in this country. Is there any reason for anybody to be unemployed? Um, well, we're nearing what's considered actually to be uh, full uh, mm. employment. Um, you know, technical full employment. I mean, unemployment in this country will probably be about four uh, percent at the end of this year. Uh, and there are big challenges in terms of attracting and retaining staff in certain economic sectors. But there's what huge the there's, 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 there's huge opportunity for anybody who wants to work. Uh, they may not be ideal jobs, but there's plenty of jobs, uh, and there's a lot of uh, people uh, in hospitality, in particular, who'll tell you they can't get staff. 
Yeah, and there are lots of people who are working in hospitality and other sectors of the economy who are underemployed and might want more hours. Mm. Um, if you look at the number of people as well in this country who are unfortunately dependent on the work and family payment because the wages that they receive from their employer and the nature mm. of the work that, or the, the na- nature of the sector they might work in is going to characterise mm. by low pay. I mean, we've over 20% of Irish workers. Yeah, but outside of sickness or disability or, or some other legitimate reason, um, it, is there any reason for people to be out of work at this stage? There's plenty of jobs. Well, yeah, and we're nearing full employment, and our unemployment levels, therefore, might are extremely low. So we're at mm. a point now where there, there may be those who are not in a position to work. There's lots of reasons, individual reasons, why uh, people can't work or why they can't take the hours that they, you know, ideally might might be able to take. Yeah. If caring or they'd lose their medical card. Well, you know, and, and they see this is where some of the imbalances uh, yeah. arise in our economy, it, it, and that's why I'm talking about the question of low pay. It pays you to be unemployed. Well, sometimes as well, might, some people might say that uh, it is very difficult to make ends meet if you're in a minimum wage job yeah, working. Well, that's the same thing put another way. It doesn't pay you to work. Uh, you know, we, we shouldn't make any apologies for having a strong social protection system. Uh, one, in fact, that does need to improve as well, and we've actually seen during the pandemic there's always well, that's wrong, though, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a, so- a strong social, pro- but there's not. I mean, it's only right that we have a strong social protection system, but isn't it wrong if it doesn't pay you to work, uh, and that? Uh, you, whatever way you look at it, uh, that's wrong, uh, and you have to make it worthwhile uh, for people to go to work. Well, you do, and that's why we're saying Ireland needs a pay rise because we have a low-pay problem in this country and people need to be attracted into the workforce and to remain there as well, and that's about precarity. It's about getting the hours that you need and the certainty that you need in terms of being able to you know, make enough money to make ends meet, to make the rent, and maybe even to get a mortgage at some point in time in the future. And I think it's only right that people can, should expect those you know, decent terms conditions in, the, in their work. Mm. There's a balance to be struck here. We do need a strong social protection system for those who can't work, and we need a strong um, you know, commitment to decent work in this country um, through new collective bargaining laws that we hope to see brought in very soon and an increase the minimum wage move towards the living wage to make sure it pays. But it's not just about, of course, the work that pays, it's about the dignity of work, Michael, it's about getting up in the morning and making a contribution to society. And I have rarely met anybody who's out of work and doesn't want to. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, and that's probably true, but there's a lot of people who are out of work uh, who aren't applying for those jobs uh, because they'll tell you that it's not worth their while working. Um, there's a, there's a, a lot of money uh, in the $6.5 billion or $6.7 billion, as it might turn out to be, that the government will have, or the extra $2 billion uh, that, that wasn't expected, uh, that will go to workers in the public sector, it seems, uh, when this new pay deal is reached, if it's ever reached. Well, if it's ever reached, I mean, there hasn't been any um, engagement uh, over the last two weeks now in the public sector unions, given the sort of tone that was being struck by some government ministers when the um, talks collapsed a couple of weeks ago. They were expecting, I would imagine, to be brought back in, uh, but no offer has been made. That's realistic. Um, the offer on the table wasn't acceptable to them, wouldn't have been acceptable uh, to their members. And there's no doubt about it. I mean, any increase will have to be catered for through the bundle of money that is available mm. for next year uh, and, and the year after and that the government is kind of framing it in that way uh, when they're, you know, these leaks that we've seen in the media mm. this morning ahead of the publication of the uh, summer economic statement, they are saying that social welfare increases, tax cuts, uh, maybe the retention of, for example, the cut to VAT uh, on, on, on fuel and so on, mm. all of that needs to be taken into account in terms of that 
that bundle of money that is available. So there's no doubt about it. I mean, there's a lot of draws on that money. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, we expect, I would hope to see over the uh, next few weeks, a re-engagement between the public sector, trade unions mm-hmm. and government. If the offer on the table is sufficient to allow the WRC to believe that, you know, both sides uh, could, could re-engage in, in, in a positive in a, in a posit- positive spirit. Yeah, and because of uh, the likes of the intervention in fuel costs, uh, the phrase that's been used is that you'll need to spend a lot of this money to stand still. Uh, they are talking about out of the two billion that one of a, one and a half uh, billion uh, will be on spending and half a billion on tax cuts. Is that the right mix? Well, that, that was the initial uh, plan under the programme for government. Uh, they've said that there will be a two-to-one split in terms of whatever headroom is available, uh, a billion on public spending and the rest on tax cuts. In fact, what they're saying now is there's probably going to be an extra half a billion euro on tax cuts. Now, we don't believe that that's the proper way to target uh, measures that, 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 that we need to bring in now because we know who the people who are experiencing the worst of this are. There are people who are living alone, there are people who are depending on social welfare, there are people in low-paid jobs, there are people who have children. Um, so, targeting is really important. We've got a very sophisticated tax and social welfare system and rather than actually spending a billion euro on tax cuts that could end up disproportionately benefiting the top 20% of income earners in the country, Michael, what we're saying is that use that money uh, to introduce the kinds of improvements to public services, universal public services that people need, like free GP care for all kids because we all know, you know, Mm. Many people, uh, the experience has been if you're paid every month, maybe that last week every month, it's very difficult if your child gets sick to have the money maybe to take them to the doctor. We know that the back-to-school costs now are really squeezing people. Mm. So we're saying actually focus the bulk of the money we have on those things that could make the most difference to working families. An extra five or ten or a week in your pocket isn't going to make a big difference. Um, you know, using all that money to 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 to, to focus on tax cuts that would, as I say, disproportionately yeah. benefit the better off. Right, it's a bad use of money and it's really yeah. a kind of sort of ideology, I think, that, uh, that, 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 that just doesn't make sense at the moment. Uh, well, one of the leaks uh, seems to be that there could be a, a new rate of income tax at uh, 30%, uh, but I don't see any talk of a tax on wealth, uh, but that could be coming down the line. Uh, it's very early days uh, and I'm sure there's a bit of uh, kite flying in all of this. Uh, the economic statement will be published later uh, and uh, if the examiner is right, uh, we'll have of uh, the budget announced officially on the 27th of September. Jed Nash, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you. That's uh, the Labour Party's spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's a TD for Louth and East Meath. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you may have heard of uh, somebody going to the hospital, uh, going into the emergency department and leaving uh, before they were seen or before their treatment had finished. Uh, but you'd imagine uh, that that is something that happens rarely. Uh, not true, actually, uh, and certainly not according to official figures that have been given to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, David Cullinan, who's on the line. Uh, and uh, a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Uh, you sought to find out how many people leave emergency departments before they've had their treatment completed. Uh, what did you find out? Well, what I found out in terms of the figures is that for the month of May alone, uh, this year, we had 9,727 patients who attended an emergency department and left without being seen. Now, there might be a range of reasons for that, but the biggest reason is overcrowding in emergency departments, people obviously waiting for long periods of time and deciding to leave. And of this 9,727, that's just under 8% of all of those people who would have presented to 
emergency departments across the state in that month. I suppose what's That's relevant to your own it? area, yeah. given mm. what's happening with Navin Hospital mm. and the potential closure of the emergency department, there were 671 patients in the month of May who left Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, which is higher than the national average. It's just under 11%, 10.9% of of all people who would have presented to that emergency department. So that's a very high number of patients in one month alone. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, looking at the uh, table that you sent me, uh, it's the second worst in the country after Tala, is it? Yes, it's exceptionally high. So as I said, the, the national average is 7.7% of patients uh, in Drogheda. It's just under 11%, 10.9%. And the figure of 671, bear in mind, it's just for one month alone. It's for the month of May. Hmm. So when you put that into context, that we have real pressures on emergency departments across the state. And we know that if you close emergency departments elsewhere or if you reduce emergency department capacity in any region, obviously it puts pressure on your more acute hospitals, the bigger acute hospitals and in your own region, obviously, that would be Drogheda. And we have a big debate, obviously, at the moment with what's happening in Navin. And one of the hospitals that has been cited as an example of what can happen and what can go wrong if you don't put capacity into all of your hospitals is what's happening in the Midwest and what's happening in Limerick. And separate figures that I received just for the, again, for the last couple of months in, in Limerick, the numbers of, of the, the length of time that patients are waiting and the numbers of people who are presenting to the emergency departments. In the first instance, it's record numbers. So for the months of January to May this year has seen the highest number of presentations to the emergency department in Limerick. Mm. And the average wait time, what's called the patient experience time, from a person going into the emergency ward and then the person being admitted to a bed was... Uh, just under 20 hours, 19.5 hours in January, 20.14 hours in February, 23 hours in March, 26 hours in April, and 24 hours in May. So that's on average across the five months of this year, 23 hours mm. for patients to be waiting, many of them in hospital trolleys. And that, again, is, is the worst of any hospital in the state. So I think, again, it's a wake-up call that when you look at what's happening in Limerick, when you look at the length of time people are waiting, uh, it's much, much higher than the national average and obviously shows uh, that if you take capacity out of other hospitals, which is what happened in the Midwest, in in Nina and in Ennis and in St. John's in Limerick, and you put all of the patients into one single emergency department without putting in the additional capacity, it's going to create exceptionally high wait times. And what we're seeing is patients leaving without being seen, patients waiting on average 23 hours. Uh, and mm. uh, it's, I, it's I don't an, an awful, It's an awful long time, <clears throat> and particularly awful if you're unwell and these people are very sick. They're so sick that they need to be admitted to hospital and, and that's why they're there. Uh, you'd wonder why all of these people uh, who leave the hospital without being seen or without having their treatment completed were there in the first instance. They obviously didn't need to be in an emergency department um, if they were well enough to leave. Well, that's unknown. So obviously some people, if you're very, very sick, you have to bear in mind what it's like to be in, a, in an emergency department if you, if you are exceptionally sick. And I've dealt with a number of cases myself in, mm. in Waterford over the last number of months where people were really, really sick, uh, but were waiting on, on a hospital chair or lying on a hospital trolley for hours on end and decided that 
They just wanted to go home. They weren't able to suffer uh, on a chair in an emergency department and maybe take a chance, go home and come back the following day. So it's not necessarily true that the patients that left are patients that are not sick. It mm. could actually be people who are very, very sick, but just were unable to... Or in the wrong the hospital. Trauma of, ...of waiting. And many people don't get a hospital trolley, mm. unfortunately, for, for many. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a chair... In, uh, in an emergency department yeah. ward. And or, or, or they were in the wrong hospital. Uh, I mean, you see people in emergency departments with sore feet, pulled ligaments, things like that, and maybe they should be at a minor injuries unit. It, it could be a mix of both, Michael. So it's, it's, it's hard to know because it doesn't give the breakdown as to why people left. But I think we all know from our own experience, over the last while we've seen really exceptional circumstances in emergency departments. We had one lady that told the story of her husband who was on a trolley in Limerick for 116 hours. He died on a hospital trolley. The indignity of that is just absolutely appalling. Mm. And he was one of a number of examples. So, yes, there are people who are going to emergency departments who can and should be seen elsewhere. The problem is that they can't get access to a GP on time. They can't get access to weather power services. That's the same, I would imagine, in your own area. Well, I'd say most of the time the problem is they don't know they're in the wrong hospital. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you break your arm, you go to hospital. Uh, you don't realise it because none of us spend all of our wake, waking time um, thinking about how hospitals are, are run these days. Uh, and that, let's say, instead of going to Drogheda, you should be going to Dundalk or to Navin uh, after this reconfiguration and so on. Um I, I suppose most people would expect, certainly given the way the polls are at the moment, uh, that after the next general election, Sinn Féin will be in government and the next Minister for Health will be a Sinn Féin minister. Will Sinn Féin keep our ladies open, the emergency yes, department? Yes, is, is the short answer. So I, I don't believe that it's the right thing to do to close the emergency department. Um, I haven't seen any plan from the HSE that demonstrates to me that uh, closing the emergency department in Avon is the right thing to do. I think in the first instance, what we need to do is to protect and enhance the emergency department capacity that we have in that hospital. And I would be very... So you very will make it safe? I think you have to obviously make it safe, but mm. we have to make all of our emergency departments safe. But so do, you, do, do you accept that it's not safe at the moment? Yes, but there are very few emergency departments which are safe, but we're not saying that we will close them. So with respect, Michael, when you look at the figures in Limerick, when you look at the average wait time of people waiting 23 hours in an emergency department, when you consider that elderly gentleman who died on a hospital trolley after waiting 116 hours, that's not safe. We had a HICWA report which did a deep dive into the emergency department in Limerick. It found that in multiple areas that emergency department wasn't safe. Now, we cannot close that emergency department, obviously, because it's the only one left in the Midwest. So what that demonstrates is closing emergency departments because you have problems, mm. because there are safety issues, isn't necessarily the best thing to do. We saw what happened in the Midwest. What we have to do is fix the problems, put in the capacity. And I haven't seen any plan, any credible plan. But you would commission Fein in government to keeping the emergency department open immediately after an election, embarking on a recruitment campaign and returning the training status to the hospital so that junior doctors would be working there. Well, I, I think what I would do if I was Minister for Health right now is to be looking at every option to keep the emergency department open, but also to expand capacity. And I think what is one of the options that should be looked at is joint appointments between hospitals in Dublin and Drogheda and with the hospital in Navan. 
So if there is capacity problems because of staff, we don't have the specialist staff, then we have to make sure that the specialist staff are there. We can't take a risk that closing the emergency department in Navin uh, is going to end up with a better service for patients when we can see what's happening elsewhere with our own eyes. And all of the data coming from Limerick when we closed emergency departments in surrounding areas showed that the hospital has got worse, emergency department weights have gone up and mm. people are not getting quicker and faster treatment. So I don't want any unsafe service anywhere in the state. And what, what we would have to do is look at the reasons why we have the very high number of presentations in emergency departments. Yep. Part of it, it has to be said, Michael, is what you were saying earlier. It's people who can't get treated elsewhere in the community, in the home, or seen by a GP. Or can and just don't know where to go. You know, I mean, that's that's quite often the problem. But what we I have... I think that's fair, Michael. No, if, I, if, oh, I well, you... this, hmm. if I can just make this point, that might be for some patients, but most people will, at the first port of call, will try and get an out-of-hours GP doctor. Okay, yeah. That's no, really that's, difficult that's to yeah. get mm-hmm. in the first instance. Mm-hmm. There are people who have chronic pain who know that their pain can be better managed in, commun- in the community in HSC settings, but the rehab beds, the recovery beds are simply not there. Yeah, but you'll see people with broken bones and pulled muscles up in the Lourdes Hospital, and I don't think that's the correct hospital for them to go to. And you, I'm not saying that uh, by way of blaming the people. It's like, how do you know? Because you break your leg or whatever it is, you go to hospital. Yes, and, and I think what we need to do there is to educate people as mm. to what's the best uh, treatment for you, what's the best treatment pathway. So I think that's a very... And it gets all the more confusing then if you break something and and you need surgery because it might be the right hospital. And, you know, we're not rocket scientists. Uh, Most people just go about their daily business, uh, as I was saying. Uh, But what we have at the moment uh, between this unholy row, between the government, Minister for Health, and the Health Authority, the HSE, and all of the officials in it, uh, is completely unacceptable because we're being told that it's unsafe to go to Navin because you might die. Uh, and we're being told if you introduce the plan to solve that, uh, it'll be unsafe to go to Drada. So how do you square that? Well, I, I think you square it by, first of all, making the obvious point that if there is a service that's unsafe, then you have to put in place the resources and the capacity to make it safe. The reason why it's seen as unsafe at the moment in Our Lady uh, of, of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda is because the potential of more patients coming from Navin to Drogheda will put more pressure on. When you consider, as I said, that 671 patients left at that hospital in the month of May because they simply could not wait in the emergency department, how is that hospital able to take more capacity? And the reason why the hospital in Navin is deemed as unsafe is because for years and years capacity was run down and we got to a point where we have a small number of ICU beds and we're being told it's difficult to recruit staff, which is why you have to look at then the options to fix the problem. And that has to be to confront consultants as well to say that you have to look at joint appointments. We can't take a risk that things are going to get better in other hospitals and have people travelling longer distances for emergency care. If, for example, we don't have the capacity in the National Ambulance Service, we know again there's been lots of horror stories of people waiting far too long for an ambulance. Mm. And I think that is the right thing to do to look at all of those issues in terms of capacity in Our Lady Blurts Hospital in Drogheda, capacity in the National Ambulance Service, but also the existing service in Navin, and then try and work out what's the safest service for patients. So I, of course, accept that. And I accept clinicians in Navin have concerns. 
But equally, there were 17 consultants in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda who penned a letter to the Minister for Health also stating that they have concerns. So there are lots of medical concerns, some of them yeah, mixed. Very serious, very serious and concerns. It's difficult, they have obviously, to, then yeah. for, for people to work out in the midst of all of that what's mm. best. And in my view, Michael, what's best is we fix the problems mm. because cutting services, in my view, is never the best way to improve services. Yeah, well, I don't believe that is uh, logically uh, is the best way. Uh, as I say, I, I think the problems uh, that we're being told about are unacceptable. Uh, it's uh, one where you go to Navin, uh, but it's not safe. You solve that problem by uh, sending people to draw it instead, but then that's not safe. Uh, and that just doesn't work, I think, for most people. We leave it there for the moment, David. Thank you indeed uh, for joining thank us you, on the programme. That's uh, Sinn Féin spokesperson on health, David Cullinan, TD. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you were listening to LMFM's news over the weekend, you'd have heard the story about the man who was arrested after smashing a couple of windows on a bus in Navan. And you probably came to the conclusion that you'd want to be very brave if you were to get on a bus in Navan based on the reports of criminality and antisocial behaviour on those buses. Independent Councillor Alan Laws is raising these issues. And a very good morning to you, Alan. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You're advising the bus drivers uh, to go directly to the Garda station when something happens. Yeah, well, basically, to, to explain this incident, Michael, if you know Abbey Road, Abbey Road is the, the bus terminus there, and it's probably just a little over 500 yards from the Garda station. I mean, this incident happened on Friday at 2 o'clock. Um, the bus driver had noticed this person. He was travelling on the bus for about two hours. He was acting aggressively, making everyone feel uncomfortable. The bus driver reported it in to the Gardaí and the Gardaí at the time said to him they're not going to be there until about two hours. And I, I do have sympathy for the Gardaí at times with the, the lack of resources and need being one of the lowest resorts uh, uh, county in the country. I know, but um, you'd walk up in less than five minutes. Yeah, why, why, was it going to, why was it going to take two hours? We don't know. I suppose right. the mm. only thing I can say to you, Michael, is that you can, you can check that with the guard or yourself. Mm. But in that sort of circumstance, I did advise the drivers, if that happens again, to actually drive into the car park mm. in the guard station. But the deal with this is, when, when we say about incidents happening, there's constant drug dealing on the bus and drug mm. use on the bus. And that's a daily occurrence. Mm. There's constantly people are trying to, people under the influence are threatening the drivers. They want to get off at unscheduled stops. They're uh, kicking the doors. They're opening the doors manually. They're kind of incidents that happen every single day when these guys are going to work. You had an incident there in September 2021 where people under the influence were arguing on the bus on the NX service and they let off a taser. Uh, to intimidate the, uh, the driver and the passengers. You had another incident in January 2022 where a man under the influence of drugs uh, passed out openly holding a knife in his hand. You had another incident in mid-2021 where the driver was chased around Navin Town because he refused to let a person under the influence onto the bus who had a, bo- a bogus pass and he was chased around the town by this dog. In February 2021 windows were broken on a couple of occasions and in June 2020 a driver was assaulted on the NX uh, service leading to the service being withdrawn for a period. Now, I was talking to um, Stephen Nugent, uh, who was uh, on the national executive of the of the NBRU uh, trade union, and they're very concerned about the number of attacks here in need and, and what they're calling for. Basically, and I think you've heard the calls yourself. Mm. We need a transport police. We live in a modern society, Michael. We desperately need a transport yeah. police. 
I was just thinking uh, when I was listening to you over the weekend uh, and some of the incidents that you've just outlined there, uh, apart from, holy God, uh, uh, you take your life in your hands of getting a bus uh, uh, in Avon, but it didn't happen back in the day of the conductor. Yeah, well, I suppose, I, I suppose having to remember... That, that was your transport police at the time. Like. Yeah, my own father was yeah. a conductor, uh, Michael, yeah. and my own mother, who's 88 years of age, uses the town service on a daily basis. Right. Now, you know, again, we, we have to, as, as, as councillors and me, and, and, and call on all our TDs, uh, we, we need more. The Garda need more resources, yeah. Michael. Yeah. We do. We're, is, you know, is, your mother, is, your, is your mother seeing this sort of thing going on, and does she feel safe? Um... At times, at the bus stop, no. No. But she, you know, she, she likes to travel into Navantown every day. She likes going into town. She's a fit 88-year-old yeah. woman. She likes going into town. She will take the risk. The bus drivers and all that and the staff are very nice to her. Yeah. But, I mean, you do see, I mean, constant drug dealing every day, that is. Right. And the drug use on the bus every day. Is it and safe again, to get on? I mean, I don't, I don't want to frighten people, but, uh, I mean, it doesn't sound very safe. Uh, are you happy with somebody you know getting onto the buses, particularly if uh, they're an older person? Again, we need these issues addressed, Michael. If these issues are addressed and the guard give the support to the bus drivers that they need, it can be a safe service. But with this going on constantly right now, you'd have to be make, you'd have to make people aware. And I suppose that's what you're doing this morning mm. as a public broadcaster. You're making people aware of what could happen on the bus. On the buses, I'm, I'm making people aware as well. The answer to all of this is having a dedicated uh, transport police. That is the answer. I mean, we have the Justice Minister here living in Mead. We have Helen McIntyre living in Mead herself. So we need Helen, actually, and the rest of the government, the TDs that live in this county, to really put pressure on the government to introduce a transport police. Because it not only keep people safe uh, travelling mm. in Mead, it keep people safe travelling all over the country. Okay. You're, we're doing our best, Michael, to attract people to this county. We don't want people coming on the NX service and this sort of behaviour going on on a daily basis, putting the drivers and the passengers at risk. So yeah, right. I'm over time, Alan. It. I have to leave it there. I'm sure there's a no lot problem. of people listening who'll be very familiar with what you're saying. Uh, others like myself who don't use the bus uh, that often who are honestly shocked. Well, at what with, you're saying. Yeah. with the climate change yeah, and with yeah. the price and fuel prices, Michael, yeah, you know yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. A lot more of us are going to be using the buses. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you, indeed. Thanks, Independent Councillor Alan Laws. Michael Reed on LMFM. We'll announce its summer economic statement uh, today. Let's speak uh, to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Sean. Thanks uh, indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. A lot of this has already been leaked, it would seem. Uh, it's going to be a six and a half a billion, six point seven billion euro uh, budget, perhaps. Uh, and uh, if reading the newspapers uh, this morning and reports are correct, it looks like the budget will be announced on the 27th of September. That's certainly the date that's being talked about behind the scenes. All right, Michael, and good morning to you. Uh, so about two weeks ahead of where it would have been, and obviously a lot of calls at the minute for the budget to be held fairly immediately, or for a mini-budget indeed to be held. And Minister Michael McGrath saying, look, that, that's not possible at the moment. We're going to do everything in the, the autumn budget, but we're going to bring it forward by just the two weeks. And as you said, yeah, we have a rough idea of the package, and there's about €4 billion euro of that that was 
has already been agreed as such that is spending that we kind of knew about and you're talking about areas across health and housing that are due to get increased budgets and so, so then the new portion is going to be somewhere between the region of 2 to 2.5 billion and that's split up in a ratio of 2 to 1 on new spending versus tax cuts or tax measures that they can bring in so it's, it's a very big package it's much more than they, they thought they would have to spend where kind of the initial talks have been around a billion to 1.5 billion and indeed it's actually going to break uh, their own rules when it mm. comes to the size of the budget package because there was a measure introduced in last year's summer economic statement where the ministers agreed they weren't going to increase overall government spending by more than 5%. But, of course, that was forecast at a time when they predicted inflation to be about 2 or 3%. And we know now it's running closer to 9 or 10 at the minute. So the rule book has been somewhat thrown out the window for this budget, uh, but there will still be, I'm sure, plenty of talk of prudence heading into the, the autumn when they announce it later. Okay, how how will they uh, go about calculating uh, public sector pay increases, uh, which will take up a a good chunk of uh, this money that's at their disposal? It will, and obviously no final figure has been agreed. The state made an offer of about 5% over two years, and that was rejected by the unions, and there hasn't been a whole whole heap of progress on that since. So usually when they have a a variable like that, what they do is they forecast a number of different scenarios for where it might enter out. I doubt many of those are going to be made public because, of course, it would reduce the the government's negotiating position if they said, oh, we've got a contingency plan for 7% or wherever it happened to be. So I doubt we'll get a huge amount of light on that, but they will have a figure in mind that they will be putting aside for that. And I think one of the big balances the government is going to have is when you talk about that kind of spending or, say, increasing social welfare, which we expect to happen in the August with a number still to be finalised, that is spending that you then have to find every single year. It's not like it's just in this budget. You have to add on the... 300, 400, 500 million, whatever the figure comes yeah. to mm. every single year. And a lot of the spending for this particular package is actually going to be reliant on corporation tax receipts, which are one-off. And mm. we know with the, the changing picture of the international corporation tax of this agreed new minimum rate, the government expects those those uh, receipts to take off over the coming years. So that's a bit of a balance they have to yeah. find as well, stuff mm. that they can just spend once and not rely on in the future. Yeah, because the money is only coming in the once uh, and may not come in uh, again next year, but you committed to increasing welfare by however much it is and the uh, Minister for Finance has been making it very clear to us uh, that it adds up very quickly because for every euro that you increase welfare by it costs the government 75 million euros so how many 75 million euros have they got to spend on welfare? Yeah, a very good question. And a lot of people are calling for, including, I think, Social Justice Ireland and others, for €20 a week increase in the social welfare payment. That would be $1.5 billion. So that That's would a lot be of money. The majority. Uh, it's, it's an awful lot of money. It's mm. an awful lot of money to find every year as well. Um, and it would be a huge amount of this package. At the same time, people are really struggling. And that is probably one of the most effective measures of targeting those who are struggling most, the people who are on uh, no to low incomes. So there's a balancing act to be done there. I think within... People I've been speaking to in government, certainly in the, in the backbenches, at least kind of say that look, we have to have a double figure increase here. It has to be somewhere at least 10, maybe 15, because if you're talking about five euro across the board, I mean, that that's nothing at the minute. All of that has been eaten up and more already. So you can see very quickly how even 2.5 billion euros, mm. that ends up being the final figure, gets eaten up very, very quickly by doing large scale measures like this. And already we're hearing some warnings from people in government that, look, don't expect this budget to cure everything either. This is going to be spending a large amount of money to, in many cases, just stand still. Mm. We've had negative inflation uh, on a a, a number of occasions over the last decade. Uh, 
where pr- things probably got cheaper or your money went further. Uh, now we're saying record inflation, uh, certainly in terms of the last 40 years, 9.6%. Uh, but it could get an awful lot worse. Uh, I think it was over 23% in 1981. Yeah, I mean, look, it could go further. Yeah. I think they're not predicting it getting near anyway, 23%, certainly in Ireland at least, but that it could go into double digits before maybe um, coming down later on the year. And the summer economic statement usually does have a forecast for the likes of inflation and for where they think the economy is going over the, the next couple of years. So we'll mm. get a bit more information on what the Department of Finance sees as the view, because we know what the view is among people. There was the poll in the, the I think, Sunday Independent over the weekend that 78% of people predict there will be a recession within the next year. There is certainly talk of it, although it looks as though technically GDP in the economy is still going to grow. That's not the case for most people who are seeing their, their wages decline uh, uh, quite rapidly. So that's going to be another interesting to one, one to watch. I think in, uh, with that in mind as well, that there could be a potential recession in the coming years, the idea of a rainy day fund is also one to watch in this economic statement. And indeed in the budget, Michael McGraw in opposition was one of those to call for it. It was implemented and then the rainy day fund was raided during COVID when I suppose there was the rainiest of rainy days in recent memory at least so whether the government also decides we need to start putting a bit more money aside in case there is that recession uh, I think it'll be another interesting debate because if you choose to put in whatever 500 million to a billion to a rainy day fund Mm. that's great for the rainy day but it's money that isn't being spent now as well When are we going to see changes Uh, because people want help now they wanted help yesterday uh, if you like Uh, we were told it'll be October now it'll be September but no matter what happens uh, there will be legislative changes won't there because to increase welfare rates you have to amend to the social welfare bill and at the same with the finance bill isn't it uh, for taxation yeah and usually all that takes quite a bit of time so usually in a budget you get it in the second week of October and then all that legislation goes to the door and the changes come into effect most often on the 1st of January and then sometimes even later in the year depending on what the budget package is but ministers have all hinted fairly strongly that that's not going to be the case this year that it will be immediate so how they do that I suppose is they have to guillotine the legislation and put it through the door very very quickly some of the changes do come in at midnight that are more at the discretion of the ministers usually the likes of the cigarettes and alcohol uh, you know the taxes on those going up so there is some scope to do it and I'm sure you would get fairly quick buy-in from the opposition if the government did say look we have to get through the doll in two days we're going to do two sittings or still a weekend or something like that they would have the support to do it but it is going to be September it's not going to be over the summer months that's probably the earliest we're going to see it end of September start of October for those social welfare rates and then some of the other ones could take even longer they're talking about a childcare package for example to reduce the cost of childcare further talking about retaining the likes of the public transport cuts by 20% so that's I suppose one that's already being felt and is just going to be, be kept and then further spending in in health and uh, and housing to try and alleviate the big picture, the macro uh, threats to the economy or that are making things more expensive. So it, it's not, it, I, I really think we should stress this is not a budget that's going to change your life overnight as much as it is going to be record money being spent. Yeah, well, a lot of people will be hoping for a little help. We we'll leave it there for the moment, Sean. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always, our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Now, thanks too to Davy, who's been on the phone. And Davy says he's seen media reports suggesting that there'll be a 10 euro increase in the state pension in uh, the upcoming budget. And he wants to respectfully ask, how 
do the government expect an increase of a, a tenner to make any real difference to older people who are struggling financially? What does 10 euro buy you these days? Very little is the answer to that, he says. Would it not be better to hand pensioners fuel vouchers, giving them half a fill of oil or a couple of bags of coal? 10 euro, well-intentioned, will be pretty ineffective in helping our older people in the coming months. Thanks, Davy, for your call to the programme and sharing those thoughts with us. Sheila has phoned us today as well. Sheila says politicians need to stop using the rising cost of living as a way of political point scoring and stop blaming each other for the current mess the country is in. Do they not realise that the people are genuinely scared about how they're going to make ends meet and they're looking to the government to make real and comprehensive compassionate decisions to help ease their burden. Can't they put aside their petty bickering, bickering for once and work today to come up with real solutions to help us out, she asks. Thanks, uh, Sheila, uh, for that uh, very important question. I, I think uh, I think a lot of uh, the politicians would say uh, they really are trying to do that. Um, I imagine that would be the case. It's not easy, though, because a lot of it is out of the control of the politicians. They've uh, no uh, way of (laughs) directing war in Ukraine or uh, making sure that the price of grain doesn't go up or gas isn't cut off or whatever it is. Uh, Claire has been on the phone to us today as well and she says she couldn't believe her ears this morning listening to Councillor Alan Laws on the radio talking about these incidents on the buses in Navan. Someone brought a taser on the bus to intimidate the driver, she says. What in the name of God is wrong with people, she asks. People should be able to use their local bus service in peace without having to face that kind of horrible incident that Alan was describing, or the horrible incidents that he was describing, for that matter. Thank you, Claire, uh, for sharing in the shock with us, if you like. Uh, Tony says that all of this constant speculation on what's coming in the budget is doing no one any good. In the run-up to the announcements, we're always promised lots of benefits and perks, but nine times out of ten, none of them actually materialise. We need real moves from government to help ease the financial burden that we're all facing into, but we also need responsibility from them as well. The last thing that we need is the government making drastic changes to temporarily ease the burden, which will then turn to prove uh, to turn out to be a financial chokehold for years ahead. Thank you, Tony, indeed, uh, for your call and uh, for sharing those thoughts with us today as well. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, everybody's feeling the pinch, uh, some more than others, and low-paid workers undoubtedly have noticed that their money isn't going as far as it once did. If you're on minimum wage, it may be difficult to live off that, and you may be wishing you were on the living wage. But what is the living wage when you consider that inflation is running at 9.6%? Let's speak to Michael Taft, who's researcher with SIPTU and uh, member of the Living Wage Technical Group. Good morning to you, Michael, and thanks as always for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you. The living wage is 12.90, isn't it? The living wage for uh, last year and this year is 12.90, but the Living Wage Technical Group will be setting a new wage in September. Mm. So we are likely to see another significant uh, uh, jump. Well, prob- uh, pro- probably not too far wrong to guess that at the moment you'd be looking at more like fourteen, nineteen, given that uh, almost 10% I- increase in inflation. 
Yes, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't like to prejudge the calculations, mm-hmm. but yeah, you would certainly be looking at the, you know, well up uh, uh, into uh, 13 euro, getting close to 14 euro. Mm. Uh, it, w- it will be a significant increase. Yeah. Uh, so h- 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 how do you manage uh, to survive if you're on the minimum wage? Uh, well, for a lot of people, they, they you know, they struggle. Uh, they struggle to pay their rent. Uh, they struggle to pay utilities. Uh, they have to cut back on uh, items that, for many of us, you know, uh, uh, we would consider necessary. So you will have people even cutting back on food, certainly on things like recreation and non-essential retail. Uh, they're, they're getting further and further squeezed. And it's not just, of course, those on the minimum wage, those on, uh, you know, uh, higher pay, uh, uh, and even those close to average incomes, especially those households uh, with children. Mm. So there are so many people getting squeezed, and they're, try- they're responding in different ways. But what it does mean is cutbacks in living standards. It's very hard to make these adjustments, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you have your job, you have your income, or whatever way uh, your income comes comes to you uh, and you have your lifestyle that you've been used to for uh, as long as you can remember I suppose a lot of people would say and then suddenly uh, you can't uh, afford to live the way you once did well that that that's correct I mean uh, uh, you know you know for those on the higher income groups uh, they can more abs- uh, easily absorb the increases though you know, for a lot of them, it still it would be difficult. Uh, it is the higher income groups that have uh, uh, have the highest savings, mm. so they can you know they have a savings to fall back on the savings that they accumulated uh, during the uh, COVID period. But for probably most households, uh, they they don't they don't have that uh, ability. They don't have the mm. savings that they can eat into, uh, and uh, any kind of change in their behavior, uh, consumer behavior, uh, will be one that uh, means that, you know, a, a deterioration in their actual living standards rather than it just being a little bit uncomfortable. Okay, uh, I suppose the point of the question is if inflation is running at almost 10%, you need a 10% increase in your income. Uh, and is uh, that uh, the type of increase that you'd expect to see with uh, the living wage or the minimum wage or indeed across the board because uh, negotiations will be going on not just in uh, the public sector but people will be uh, negotiating pay increases this year and they'll be looking at how uh, their spending power has reduced and by 10%. Yes, I mean, there's two things that there. There are two uh, steps that the, the government could take that could uh, help uh, uh, ease the uh, inflation burden on so many households. First, would be to substantially increase the minimum wage uh, next year. And you know, there's even an argument that, as uh, we've been hearing from some government spokespersons, that they are going to bring forward social protection increases, say to October. Whereas normally it would be in January, they're going to bring it forward to October. That, you know, a substantial increase in the minimum wage uh, not only be uh, 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 enacted for next year, but be brought uh, again forward to October. Mm. So by increasing the, the minimum wage, you do a number of things. One, you benefit uh, those who have the least income. And those are people in so many cases, I would imagine the majority of cases, they don't have access to social protection supports, they, uh, things like fuel allowances, etc. So they really are out there on their own in the market. So, you know, a, a significant increase in the minimum wage uh, would uh, uh, 
help, you know, bring up the, the floor which by which so many people would benefit. Mm. Because let's not forget, there's 350,000 employees out there who are officially categorized as low paid. Mm. So that's the first benefit. The second benefit is, uh, you know, uh, would be for businesses themselves. The National Competitiveness Council has warned that if people start cutting back which they inevitably will on consumer spending, this is going to uh, have a big impact on domestic SMEs. Mm. So if you want to maintain business revenue, and business revenue is dependent upon people's wage levels, well, why not give an increase to those groups who spend just about everything that they get? So that will increase business revenue mm. uh, and will uh, help uh, these households uh, during that period. That's the first step. The second step is it's now beyond time for the government to consider introducing energy price controls. This is increasingly being introduced in a number of EU countries and with good effect. It's not the full solution, but again, it will help, uh, uh, it will help households in managing uh, their energy bills, especially uh, when we're coming into the winter. So to in introduce uh, uh, price controls for electricity, uh, for gas, on top of increasing the minimum wage, that means that you are actually resorting to measures that are not just about cash transfers. This does a lot of the heavy lifting and allows the government more freedom to target resources on low and average income households. And it brings a bit of certainty as well to household budgets, I'm sure. And we're going to hear uh, from the government today and it'll outline how much it has at its disposal for spending in the budget, which will be announced, it seems, at the end of September. And it seems it'll be in the region of 6.5, 6.7 billion euro. Uh, but when you talk about the minimum wage, can the government uh, afford to increase the minimum wage? Uh, because, of course, that increase will be passed on to a lot of private sectors sector employers, Uh, but I I see someone in the text messages giving out about how a lot of the £6.5 will be gobbled up by the public sector pay increases whenever, if ever, they are agreed. Uh, But there is another issue for government to contend with, which is that a a lot of of government employees, uh, and I take it this is Lawson or, or Texter, but a lot of government employees are on minimum wage, aren't they? No, they, they would be uh, uh, above uh, above the minimum wage, but some would be below the living wage, because uh, the living wage is not an hourly calculation. It's articulated that way uh, to get across the point of you know what is the level of living wage, but actually the living wage is calculated on an annual basis because we don't live from hour to hour; we live from year to year. Right. And uh, the living wage uh, last year. Uh, was calculated at 26,000 euros a year. Mm. So if you earn 26,000 uh, uh, euros or less, you are living, for a single person, a uh, full-time wage, you are below uh, the, the living wage. So you could actually be earning the hourly living wage, but if you're only on 30 or 32 hours and you can't get extra work, or you have uncertain hours and you know, like in the number of precarious contracts, uh, you are still falling below uh, that, that key threshold. But uh, actually, the increasing the minimum wage would actually be of benefit to the government because that would increase uh, uh, tax revenue. 
Anytime your wages go up, you know, the government mm-hmm. takes a bit of it. It's, you know, they'd be paying at the standard rate, but it would increase tax revenue. It would increase uh, consumption taxes. And it would increase costs. Uh, and you're into this argument then about chasing inflation, uh, which is uh, what uh, Irish governments did in, in the 70s and 80s and only saw it reach 23% then in 1981. Well, I don't think you can compare that period then to now. But even if you did, is it, a, is it a matter that wages are chasing inflation or are wages protecting people from inflation? Mm. Don't forget, during that period, not only did we have inflation of like 20%, we had interest rates of 15 to 20%. Uh, uh, it, was a, it was a period, it was a terrible period during that time, mm. but the wage increases did help to uh, uh, you know, protect uh, people's living standards. But more recently... More recently, for instance, in 2000, they actually experienced the same kind of inflationary spike. It went up to 7 or 8% unexpectedly. So, you know, the, a new pay deal was negotiated. The wage increase doubled uh, for two years and inflation fell. There is no automatic relationship between wages and prices, especially now, because you could increase wages, you could cut wages. That's not going to make a bit of difference uh, to the price of oil or gas on the global markets. It's not going to make a bit of difference to the price of steel or the price of shipping. The inflation today is being driven by supply-side factors, and it will only get under control when uh, global markets and supply chains begin to normalize. In the meantime, we have to take steps and we have to be innovative in the way that we uh, confront uh, the cost of living crisis for people. Okay, Michael, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme today. Michael Taft is a researcher with the SIP2 Trade Union and a member of uh, the Living Wage Technical Group. Now, thanks to Mary in Trim, uh, who tells us that she was just shocked yesterday when she went to buy a bale of briquettes. She says that in the space of a month, uh, it's gone up by €2.30. Where in God's name is the justification for this uh, and how are we supposed to pay for heating our homes in the winter, Mary wants to know. Uh, Navangardi have to come down as far as the Cavan Mead border at King's Court. Uh, that's uh, the journey they have to travel uh, to get into Navan, according to one of our caller uh, texters. So if uh, they were out in a call, it, it could take some time to get back to Navan from uh, that border area. And maybe that was the problem, which was why uh, the bus driver was told it would take two hours for them to arrive uh, when the driver was worried. I think when the man broke the windows, uh, they were there very quickly. Uh, but... Uh, I suppose it is a question for the Gardaí, and thank you indeed uh, for making that point. Tony in County Loud uh, texting us today as well, and he says, Michael, you got it very hard to, to get Jed Nash to admit that there's a certain cohort who will never work, and why should 5% be regarded as full employment and the other 95% carry them for their entire lives? Uh, and the other ridiculous argument uh, that has continued over the weekend is that a so-called disciplined army should decide for itself where and when it will help out or not. And according to Jared Crockwell, should be paid a second time if they do. There has never been such a discussion in the past. 
when uh, they were called into action for storm damages, uh, bus strikes uh, and so on. This would create a, a dangerous precedent. You might as well say that they were actually asked to fight, that they would only do, if they were asked to fight, that they would only do so for extra money and that the wages that they're presently receiving is only standby money for sitting on their backsides in barracks doing nothing, says Tony. Thanks, uh, Tony. Uh, a lot in that, uh, of course. Uh, I think the idea of full employment, uh, I'm not sure if uh, there's complete consensus on it being at 5%, uh, maybe 3%, but there's always people who are in between jobs and people who can't work uh, for whatever the reason is. Uh, so you'll always have a, a number of people who are unemployed it would be impossible to have 100% employment. Uh, and as for the army, well, yeah, I think uh, there's some people who might agree with you. I think there's probably a, a lot of people who are asking the question about a, a private for-profit company who can call on the army uh, and pay so little uh, in terms of an allowance. But thank you indeed, as always, for your text message. Always great to hear from you. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, there's something wrong, isn't there? If uh, COVID was supposed to be over, why are they cancelling all these flights? If it's because staff are out of work with COVID, or why are there more than 800 people in hospital and over 30 people in ICU with COVID? Uh, It's certainly not over. Uh, That seems uh, to be the situation. Let's speak uh, to Dr. Jack Lambert, Professor of Medicine and Consultant in Infectious Diseases at the UCD School of Medicine. And uh, a very good morning to you. Uh, And thanks, as always, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning, Jack. Uh, Are you taken uh, by surprise? Uh, that we're looking, um, that we're dealing with uh, another wave of uh, this virus? Not really, not really. I mean, I mean, we were hoping that one day it would just burn out, but it seems to be, um, you know, it likes humans, you know, um, like bird flu dies out because it doesn't like growing in humans, so it just kind of peters out. But coronavirus seems to have adapted well to living in humans, and it looks like it's, you know, going to come in waves two or three times a year, um, and it's you know it's here for the indefinite future. So we just need to find a way to learn to deal with it. Nice. Uh, and what does that mean? <laughs> well, 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 what it's that a, means is it's it, an impossible it, question. Know, That's why I laugh. It's an yeah. impossible. It, it yeah, is an impossible yeah. question. I mean, I mean, everybody seemed to in the last wave. Most people were either vaccinated or had herd immunity, but the antibody levels drop off 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 awfully quickly. With flu, you get a flu vaccine or you get the flu, and you're good for a year. But we're getting, you know, they're recommending, you know, coronavirus vaccines four months after the previous one. So that means they're only providing you short-term immunity. Infections only providing you a short-term immunity. And, the, you know, the, the Omicron strain one is not protecting you from Omicron strain five, which seems like it, that's now circulating worldwide. So I, I guess we either just have to take our chances, not wear a mask, get the infection, or when there's a surge, you know, do the sensible thing, wear a mask, uh, because the consequence of not wearing a mask is you get the infection. I know lots of people have gotten the infection um, and you're out of work. Um, you know, there's consequences to the airline industry. There's there's consequences to the hospital. A lot of my staff have out of work. So we're not overwhelmed in the hospital dealing with COVID cases in the ICU in the hospital. We're kind of, we're, we're unable to do the rest of the hospital business because our staff is out seven to ten days in quarantine and sick. Yeah, well, you've no option, do you? I mean, that's one of the things, even if you're not sick or not feeling sick, uh, you have to quarantine for seven days. 
That's correct, and that's required. And then, and then the final issue with 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 COVID is long COVID. You know, I mean, there's I have a long COVID clinic, and I'm seeing lots of people um, who just haven't recovered. You know, even after they get over a mild coronavirus infection, seems just like the flu, but flu disappears in a in a week or two. Um, some people are kind of hanging on with long COVID for months and months, and the more time you get it. Um, I, I would imagine the whole population of Ireland have have got COVID at one time, and if one to five percent of them end up with symptoms of COVID, long COVID for years and years, they're out of the workforce. There's huge consequences to that, mm. medically and economically. Uh, and what's the most obvious symptom? Is it fatigue? Well, that's what people are getting: fatigue and brain fog, but also like dysautonomia. You know, like blood pressure up, blood pressure down, random pains all over their body. It's kind of a it's a, it's a bit of a scary virus as far as I'm concerned. It's, yeah. not, it's not what we would anticipated, you know, a year ago that, that patients would persist with these kind of symptoms. So I would say it's good news that Omicron is, is not killing people like it used to and people mm. aren't ending up in the ICU. But it's bad news because it's 10 times more infectious and more people are going to be incapacitated for either a short time or for a longer period if they get long COVID. Uh, and what's brain fog? Is it just that you're a bit cloudy or uh, not really with it, or could it be something more sinister? Well, no, no. There's actually, there's actually, you know, they've done PET scans, brain scans, you know, and research studies in, in America on patients with long COVID, and there's inflammation of the brain. There's hyperfusion defects in parts of the brain. Right. So brain fog is is like like. Oh, I, I see this every day. Somebody Friday said, look, I went, I went to the bank and I couldn't remember my PIN number. I'm only 55. I've had that PIN number for the last 20 years. You know, another of my staff kind of said, Dr. Lambert, I just want, I'm not that sick, but my, my boss has called me demented because I can't remember any, anybody's name in the office. You know, this is a, a 52-year-old individual. So it's just subtle, you know, cognitive problems. But mm. if, if your job is your brain and... You, you can't remember the names of the employees in your office. That 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 has a consequence. Of course it does. Yeah. And could it lead to the early onset of dementia? Who, who knows? Who right. knows? I yeah, mean, because there are other problems as well. Find, we're going to find that out. You know, yeah. I mean, recently there's been a publication saying that people with chronic Lyme, um, there's an association with dementia. So infections can precipitate dementia and then can COVID, post-COVID inflammation of the brain cause dementia, that time will tell. Mm. And uh, is um, there one sort of, uh, is there a person who would be more typical of getting long COVID? Would it be somebody who had one infection or multiple infections? Because we hear people having two, three, four, five, having had COVID two, three, four, five times. I mean, I, I think there's certain people that are just programmed to get it. You know, people right. that had maybe some pre-existing abnormality in their immune system. Because e- even when you looked at the first wave of COVID, why is it that some people, a 55-year-old, ended up with a white out of their lung and somebody else just ended up with the sniffles and they, they appear to have nothing wrong with them? So I think there's something something about people's immune system that kind of makes it difficult for them to, you know, control the infection and clear the infection. Um, but, but we don't know. We're still learning. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who think, ah, just get on with it. Well, I'm trying to get on with it, but I, mm. I don't want to be out of work, um, you know, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to spread it to my family because then I'll be out of work for another week because I'll get kids to take care of, and I don't want to get long COVID like a lot of my patients mm. in clinic who, you know, including some nurses and staff members who have been out of work for two years, and these are people that never worked never missed a day of work in their life till two years ago and now here they are debilitated um, with no 
no real hope for the future, unfortunately. Mm, and there's a, a lot of people who got COVID recently, much to their surprise, uh, because they thought uh, the danger was over. Yeah, but it's not over. It's a, it's a respiratory virus, you know. It's mm. just like it's going to continue to circulate. Every winter, flu circulates. And, you know, the history shows that you can get three COVID infections in one year. You know, coronavirus infections, the common cold virus. It's common to get three infections in one year. And, you know, COVID-19 is part of the coronavirus common cold family. Um, so it seems like it's acting the same way. We're going to continue, it's going to continue to mutate and cycle you know, through mm. different countries and different continents. So it looks like it's going to do it three times a year. So should we get vaccinated in the autumn? Uh, it looks as though uh, that's probable or certainly possible that a vaccine will be offered to people going into the autumn. And should we get vaccinated every four months after that? Well, I don't know. I, I, that's another debate. Mm. I don't think it's practical to be given mRNA vaccines every four months. There's a, there's a new company called Novavax that have a protein vaccine, kind of similar to the flu vaccine. And my hope is if we get more vaccines like that, that you can just give once a year like the flu vaccine. Um, you know, I, I don't think the mRNA vaccines every four months are a sustainable, um, you know, plan moving forward. But if you're, if you're highly immunocompromised, and you got Omicron and you, you'd end up sick in the hospital, I think definitely those are the populations I would target for the mRNA vaccines, you know, the current vaccines, until a better one comes along. Okay, well, I suppose we all should be aware that the virus is here. It's uh, very, very contagious at the moment. Uh, and I think uh, Killian de Gascon was saying uh, that it probably won't peak for another couple of weeks. Right, and I'd wear a mask. I do wear a mask. I'm in minority, and I would advise others, to, you know, to, to you know, to take your chances or wear a mask. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us today, Dr. Jack Lambert, Professor of Medicine and a consultant in infectious diseases at the UCD School of Medicine. Let me bring you some more of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming to us. A lot of people in touch with us today. I'm delighted to say, and uh, thanks to Peter, who was in touch with us, saying no shortage of money for the spoiled public sector, the most well-off in Irish society now, and not a penny for the working poor and those on the dole. Would any of those in the public sector work for 10 50 an hour? I don't think so, but they expect us, the working poor, to do so. And he says there's over a million and a half people working on minimum pay now. Why are the best paid in our society getting pay increases while the rest of us are on the breadline and finding it extremely hard to survive? It's a sure recipe for a revolution. The spoiled few in the public service only number under a half a million, but they're being looked after by their friends in the doll, and it's a holy disgrace. Uh, thank you indeed, uh, Peter, for your comment and indeed your strong thoughts and sharing them with us on the programme today. Uh, somebody else in touch saying people won't work if they... Uh, they would work if they got enough hours and decent wages. That's why they're short of staff in the hotels and the airport won't give people the hours or the money. Uh, Deirdre and Kells in touch saying she has a, a great idea. They could set up a, a money printing factory because everything is going up in price and you have the ESB going up in August. Where is it all going to end? It's just not right, says uh, Deirdre. Thank you, uh, as always, for your message. Thanks, too, to Paddy Duffy, uh, who was in touch with us as well. And he says, we have officially 600,000 of our people living in poverty 
of which almost 200,000 are children. Of these, a significant number are in precarious employment. As of 2021, our GDP was 440 billion US dollars. We're the fifth wealthiest country in the world by GDP per head of population. How can any government stand over these statistics? Where the hell is all of this wealth going to? Some republic, says Paddy Duffy, uh, who also says it's absolutely disgraceful. Well, thanks as always, Paddy, for your text and sharing your thoughts with us. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, uh, another message uh, from WhatsApp to us uh, from somebody who says, why is nobody mentioning the fact uh, that the road from Navan to Slane is closed from today for three months with diversions and uh, traffic delays? Uh, it's a long time uh, and a very busy road at that. Not the first time uh, that major works have taken place on that road. I suppose you have to understand when the council has work to do and uh, improving roads uh, and so on. Uh, but you would wonder if uh, they were going to do it, uh, if there was any chance they could do it all at once. Uh, but uh, that is uh, the situation. I'm sure it'll cause some uh, disruption over the coming weeks and months uh, for that matter. Uh, thanks uh, for raising that with us in your message uh, to uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, somebody else uh, in touch with us saying the Irish went abroad and worked or died. They didn't sponge uh, and the best suite for laser lays for wasters is <clears throat> to give them work to do cleaning up uh, the dump uh, bill uh, says uh, Tom in his message to us there this morning as well thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to get in touch with us uh, another call uh, from Margaret who's in Navan who's saying I'm not sure how I'm going to cope with the bills every time uh, I'm asked to spend money it seems to be more I'm being asked for than the last time no matter what it is uh, whether it's a bale of briquettes or indeed uh, my groceries for that matter we're going into the winter it's going to be a very uh, long, long winter uh, trying to cover the bills. Uh, let's hope uh, that the increases that we get this year are in line with uh, the cost of living because as things stand, it's very difficult to cope. Now, let's uh, talk uh, about uh, the idea of a border poll in uh, this country uh, because uh, I suppose there's been some speculation in recent months uh, and in particular since uh, the Stormont elections uh, that uh, a border poll uh, could be considered given the fact that uh, power sharing has collapsed as a result of uh, the position uh, the DUP has taken over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, there um, will undoubtedly uh, be uh, uh, some time in between now and when it will happen, but it certainly should not happen now, according to the Tarnish to Leo Vratker. Leo Vratker was uh, speaking to the BBC yesterday, and this is uh, what uh, the Tarnish had to say to Sunday Politics about the prospect of a border poll. In relation to your question on the border poll, um, uh, it, that is provided for in the Good Friday Agreement, as you know. Um, I believe the aspiration to a united Ireland is, is a legitimate one. It's something supported by my party, something I believe in, uh, something that our constitution uh, aspires to as well. Um, but uh, I don't think it's appropriate or right at this time. Um, fundamentally, because I think we need to get the assembly and executive up and running. Uh, we need to resolve the issues uh, around the protocol, and I think that can be done. Um, but also because the tests in the Good Friday Agreement aren't met, 
Um, it's very clear in the Good Friday Agreement that uh, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland should call a referendum uh, if it appears that there's a majority in favour of United Ireland. That doesn't. That's not the case. We've, there's, there's been no poll or consistent poll lead at all for unification. And if you look at the Assembly elections, while Sinn Féin gained votes, they didn't gain any seats. SGLP lost seats. The number of MLAs in this Assembly who want United Ireland is actually lower than in the last. So, to my, in my mind, uh, a border poll at this stage um, would be both divisive uh, and defeated, and that wouldn't be a good outcome for anyone. Right, that's Thomas uh, Leo Vatker speaking to the BBC's Sunday Politics uh, programme yesterday. Uh, and, of course... Uh, there are some who would disagree, as is always the case. Uh, the Tanisha making these comments, uh, as I mentioned a, a moment ago, because of uh, the fallout uh, from uh, the British uh, government's position on uh, the protocol, indeed the DUP's position on uh, the protocol, and that it must be removed or torn up, uh, as uh, the case may be. Uh, but not everybody in uh, the UK or indeed in Westminster or indeed in uh, the Conservative Party uh, agree with uh, the unilateral position that the British government is taking. Actually, my experience was that the EU looked very clearly, carefully at the political situation in any country. As I discovered after I had faced a no-confidence vote, despite having won that no-confidence vote, they then start to ask themselves, well, is it really worth negotiating with these people in government, because will they actually be there in any period of time, regardless, regardless of the justification or not for them taking that view? But also, actually, I suspect they are saying to themselves, why should they negotiate in detail with a government that shows itself willing to sign an agreement, claim it as a victory, and then try to tear part of it up in less than three years' time? So my answer to the second question as to whether this will, bill will achieve its aims is that no, it will not. My final question is about the UK's standing in the world. The UK's standing in the world, our ability to convene and encourage others in the defence of our shared values, depends on the respect others have for us as a country. A country that keeps its word and displays those shared values in its actions. As a patriot, I would not want to do anything that would diminish this country in the eyes of the world. I have to say to the government, this bill is not, in my view, legal in international law. It will not achieve its aims and it will diminish the standing of the United Kingdom in the eyes of the world. And I cannot support it. It's a familiar voice, isn't it? It's uh, the former British Prime Minister, Theresa May, who was speaking on uh, the debate on the introduction of uh, the legislation which will allow a British government at some time in the future, if it decides to do so, to rip up the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, And as you heard uh, Theresa May telling the British government that uh, she believes uh, that the unilateral action is not legal, that it is a breach of international law uh, and indeed it shows the British government in a, a very, very poor light. This bill fixes the specific problems that have been caused in Northern Ireland whilst maintaining those parts of the protocol that are working. It fixes problems in four areas, customs and SPS, a dual regulatory model, subsidy control and VAT, and governance. On customs and SPS, the bill creates a green and red lane system. 
All those trading into Northern Ireland will be part of a trusted trader scheme. Goods destined for Northern Ireland will not face customs bureaucracy. Goods for the Republic of Ireland and the EU will go through full EU-style border procedures. And all data for both the green and red lanes will be shared with the EU in real time as the goods depart from Great Britain. This means the EU will have this data before the goods arrive in Northern Ireland, ensuring that the EU single market is protected. And that's Liz Truss, uh, the Foreign Secretary. A lot of people think she might be the next British Prime Minister. Thanks uh, to Pat in Athboy, who's been on the phone to us. Pat says, there's no buses that go directly to Blanchardstown Hospital. The bus will drop you at the ramp and you have to walk to the hospital. Pat thinks this is disgraceful. What good is that to anyone? Surely a dedicated bus service would make life easier for everyone. Tommy has been in touch with us today and Tommy says that our public representatives don't have any real understanding of how much people are struggling at the minute. How could they when they have such generous salaries to get by on? It's galling to hear them telling us that we should be tightening our belts. Thank you, Tommy. Thanks for everybody who's been in touch. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.